Today is really the only day that's universally accepted as a special day to recognize the contribution that women have made to our society, namely those women who have raised children. So on behalf of the men of the church, ladies, happy Mother's Day. We love you, and I want to say we couldn't do life without you, literally and spiritually. As Christians, given that said, it's right for us to express our constant gratitude to mothers because without a doubt, they play a very unique role in all human beings. In an article on motherhood penned by a man named W.L. Caldwell in 1928, he wrote a very profound and, I think, moving paragraph about the wonderful role mothers have. Listen. He said, quote, May we pause to pay honor to her, who, after Jesus Christ, is God's best gift to men, mother. It was she who shared her life with us, when as yet our members were unformed. Into the valley of the shadow of death she walked, that we might have the light of life. In her arms was the garner of our food and the soft couch of our repose. There we nestled in the hour of pain. There was the playground of our infant glee. Those same arms later became our refuge and stronghold. It was she who taught our baby feet to go and lifted us up over rough places. Her blessed hands plied the needle by day and by night to make her clothes. She put the book under our arm and started us off to school. But best of all, she taught our baby to lit our baby lips to lisp the name of Jesus and told us first the wondrous story of our Savior's love. Now that warm sentiment I think could be wholeheartedly affirmed by Paul. Because he wrote to Timothy and he commended his mother and grandmother for being the human instrument to bring the faith to him. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, he told Timothy, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I am sure that it is in you as well. So as I thought today, how admittedly it's not normal for me to break from our normal progression through the book I'm preaching through, I just felt compelled this Mother's Day to bring a message to women. And I was drawn to Paul's writings, which often speak of a woman's role in the life of the church, and their became evident in my soul the burden to preach 1 Timothy 2, verses 9 to 15. It's in this portion of Scripture 
that we see a portrait of a godly woman. And since all mothers are women, I thought an exposition of this text would be especially helpful and relevant today. The letter of 1 Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul to his son in the faith, Timothy. Paul led Timothy to Christ on his first missionary journey and added him to his team at the beginning of his second missionary journey. Young Timothy was put in charge as the pastor of the Ephesian church, which had serious doctrinal issues. It was a project church. It was a church that needed godly leadership. And so Paul, in 1st and 2nd Timothy, known as the pastoral epistles, writes to Pastor Timothy to help him carry out his task of shepherding the church. So then, the overarching theme of this letter is a shepherd's manual for a young pastor. So as you can imagine, the past couple of years, I've been living in these, in these letters. And if you're an elder or aspire to be an elder, know these letters well. The purpose of this letter, 1 Timothy, is explicitly summarized in chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. And it was simply to instruct Pastor Timothy regarding how the church ought to conduct itself. There is a way in which the church, when it comes together, is to conduct itself. There's a way we ought to do it. And one of the major issues that needed to be confronted and corrected was the conduct of Christian women in the assembly of corporate worship. That is the immediate application, that is the immediate context. However, it does have a broader application, as you'll see. So let's read 1 Timothy 2, verses 9 to 15. 1 Timothy 2, beginning in verse 9. The word of God reads, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who first was created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. In this portion of Scripture, there are five characteristics of a godly woman. Five characteristics of a godly woman. These characteristics clearly reveal how a Christian woman ought to conduct herself in the household of God. The first characteristic is that a godly woman is modest. A godly woman is modest. Verse 9, Paul says, likewise. This adverb, likewise, it, it marks a transition to a new aspect of the same overall subject. In verse 8, he had 
just discussed very briefly the conduct of men in the church gathering. And now he turns to that of women. Men are commanded to pray, and likewise women are commanded to adorn themselves in a manner fitting for worship. He says, I want women to adorn themselves. The word translated adorn, uh, perhaps you've heard me explain this before. It comes from the Greek word kosmos, which, which simply means to arrange or to put in order or to make ready. So, ladies, you are to prepare yourself for worship. Modesty does not mean women are supposed to come to church in their pajamas or intentionally try to make themselves look disheveled and disorganized. She's to arrange herself, make herself ready, but here's how she's to do it. With proper clothing. The word proper here, again, is derived from the same word cosmos. Which, which, which means order, uh, implying the opposite of chaos. And clothing here has to do more with the material clothing. It has to do with her whole appearance. Her whole appearance. Not just her shirt and pants or dress. The obvious implication is, is that women here are to come to corporate worship ready to face the Lord. And not to draw attention to herself at all. But Paul keeps going. This is, how, this is why I like Paul's writings, because he, he's very detailed in, in his prescriptions. He says, I want women to adorn themselves modestly and discreetly with proper clothing. Okay, what's proper clothing? Well, he tells us. He tells us. Not with braided hair. He's not saying that Hairstyles are bad, but he's calling out those women who have showy and extravagant hairdos that would distract people from trembling before God. That's not much discreet. And you think of um, you know, like, a, like a, a prom or a wedding where the ladies, you, you, you spend a lot of time and, and maybe money, I don't know how much it costs, but... but the, the hair is just, just very extravagant, and it looks beautiful. And when you walk into the room, people are like, wow, you look so gorgeous. The ha- I love that hair. And that's great. And there's a time for that. That's fine. But that's not for church. And then he says, gold or pearls. Again, he's not saying that you can't wear jewelry. Women in that culture often wove gold and pearls and other jewelry into their hair for the purpose of calling attention to themselves to flaunt their wealth. That's not monster discreet. Or costly garments. Again, he's not saying that you can't have expensive, fancy clothes in your closet. But he is saying that expensive clothing is not to be worn in worship because it could shift the focus on her. And that's not discreet or modest. Now you say, well, how do I know what type of clothing should be considered costly garments? Well, perhaps back then it was easier to discern that. Because... 
the, the social class was so polar opposite, right? So in our culture, we have knockoffs, right? They look like the real thing, but they're not. And then you have people who, who you know, wear very cheap clothing, and you could tell. And then you have people that, I don't know, maybe shop at Nordstrom's or something. You could tell, you know, it, it costs a couple bucks to buy it. The purpose here is not to judge every single person's shirt and pants. The point here is for the women hearing this to examine their hearts and asking themselves if, if what they're wearing is drawing attention to themselves. There is a time to flaunt hair. There is a time to flaunt your outfit. There is a time to wear all types of jewelry to, to uh, draw attention to yourself. The bride in a wedding, all attention is on her, right? When I officiate weddings, I told the dude, hey, it ain't about you, man. Just, just step back and let her be the center of attention. Because, because she, you know, for most women, I mean, it's one of those things. They get the white dress and the hair. It's one of those things they just can't wait to experience. So that's okay. But when we come to church, ladies, it's not about you, right? It's not about drawing attention to yourself. It's about drawing attention to God, right? That's, that's what Paul's getting at here. And, and, that, and that's, the, that's the common thread that weaves this verse together, isn't it? It's self-focus. In our culture, women are so judged by their appearance, aren't they? More than men are. Or maybe men just don't care that much. But in, in our culture, women are judged so harshly by how they look. So therefore, they, they are bred and they are trained to dress in a way that will attract attention to themselves so they can feel loved and wanted. And they feel they have to dress in that way, in a way to reveal as much as possible. And with time, the line drifts further and further away, away from biblical modesty. But Christian ladies, let me, let, I, I'm very passionate about this, especially now that I have a daughter. You have to understand that your body is not a spectacle for men and women to gawk at. If you're in Christ, your body is merely a vessel to serve your master. Amen? Men, train your daughters to think that way. Their body is not for men to look at and women to judge. It's simply to serve the Lord Jesus. So the first characteristic is that a godly woman is modest. Second, a godly woman is obedient. Verse 10. But rather, Paul says, by means of good works. Good works is simply obedience to God. If you would like more um, knowledge on good works, go back and, and listen to the sermon I preached on James 2. Talked all about good works and how it relates to your faith. Paul here, by good works, he simply means that obedience to God is our primary motive, which is the natural result of making a claim. To make a claim is to make a public pronouncement. So ladies, when you are being obedient to God before men, you're making a public announcement. You're preaching with your life, so to speak, to godliness. And by virtue of making that public profession of faith in Christ, 
Her good works vindicate who she is. A Christian woman. Christian woman. That's her identity. A few days ago, I had the chance to hear the chaplain for the Seattle Mariners. I got everybody's attention now, right? And, and one of the things that he, he talked about and really stood out to me, which wasn't really a surprise, but it was, it, it was a reminder about how these multimillionaire celebrities come to him and they say something like this. I'm living my childhood dream of playing professional baseball in front of 40,000 people. And what, I mean, what bo- little boy doesn't fantasize about being, you know, a famous baseball player? He says, I'm living that dream. I have more money than I know what to do with. And then he says, I feel alone. I, I don't even know who I am. And so he says these baseball players that, that we uh, tend to idolize, they, they, they're some of the most depressed, lonely people on the planet. And you know what that kind of language reveals about the person? That they have no identity. But we, okay, here, this application is more general, so it applies to men as well. We who make a claim to godliness, we who profess to be Christians, we know who we are, don't we? We don't have to wonder who we are. We don't have to wonder what our identity is. We are slaves of our master. And our good works, our obedience, testifies to our identity in Christ. First and foremost, you are a Christian. who is obedient to Christ. The third characteristic of a godly woman is she is teachable. In verse 11, a godly woman is teachable. Paul goes on to say, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Now, other translations say, let a woman learn, or a woman should learn. And we need to stop right there. We're going to stop right there, and I want you to consider a very important, crucial observation. Because this clause is almost always overlooked and glossed over, and oftentimes we want to respond with a knee-jerk emotional reaction by saying, what does it mean quietly? What do you mean I'm supposed to be submissive? You know, that's, we want to just, ugh, we just want to just fight that right away, but we've got to stop. In reality, this phrase, let the women learn was a radical statement. And I'm going to explain to you why. Because while women were not barred from attending synagogue, neither were they encouraged to learn. In fact, if you do a study of the background, you'll see that most rabbis refused to teach women. And some likened teaching women to throwing pearls before swine. But just like how men in the church today, wielding tradition over truth as justification for abusing women, the first century Jewish view of women was also traditional. It did not come from the Bible. 
Women in the Old Testament were also recipients of the Mosaic Law, not just men. Women in the Old Testament were to teach it to their children, not just men. Which implies if they were going to teach it, they had to learn it, right? Women in the Old Testament were equally protected by the law, not just men. Women had inheritance rights, participated in the Jewish feasts. They could take a Nazarite vow and be involved in spiritual service, not just men. But sadly, like men tend to do, they invalidate the word of God for what? What would Jesus say? For the sake of your tradition. The Greek culture wasn't much different than the Jewish culture. Listen to this. One commentator said this about Greek culture. The respectable Greek woman led a very confined life. She lived in her own quarters into which no one but her husband came. She did not even appear at meals. Can you imagine that, guys? Like, we, we, we don't even think about going to a public event without our wife, do we? That, that's just crazy. If my, my wife can't go, I ain't going, right? <laughs> but, but in the Greek culture, I mean, the woman never went. She stayed at home. And he goes on to say, there never at any time appeared on the, she never appeared alone on the street. She never went to any public assembly. And therefore, because of the Greek and Jewish view of women, they missed out on a lot of teaching. And if their husband didn't teach them, they were totally ignorant. And now, little old Paul comes along, a traitor to the Jews, a terrorist to the Christians. He comes along, he says, let the women learn. Let them learn. The culture at that time demanded that women were to be separate. But now in the church, men and women come together in the education process. Now, do you see how let the women learn was such a radical statement with that background in mind? And I know it's sad. It grieves me. To see how people will take this verse and twist its meaning by thinking it's a misogynist statement. Let the women learn is the polar opposite of a sexist statement. Because this statement gave women, listen, this statement gave women a freedom they never had. It was a big deal for, the, for a bunch of ex-Jews and pagans to welcome women into the main assembly to learn what they were learning. But our feministic culture wants you to remain ignorant of that historical background. And we cannot force our contemporary American way of thinking under the text. Our exegesis tells us that in Timothy's day, let the women learn was a liberation. It was a liberation. So my friends, especially ladies who are here today, God the Spirit, through the pen of Paul, commands all pastors to let you be taught. To include you in the ministry of the word. To include you in hearing the preaching and to be conformed by it, just like the men. 
And don't take it for granted. I know in this culture, with feminism on the rise, it's hard to understand this text. But understand that true Christianity has never or will ever treat women like second-class citizens, like many other religions do. Now, that's, now I hope that's crystal clear. So women ought to be taught. Women ought to be allowed to learn when they didn't used to be. But Paul goes on to say that there is a way in which women ought to learn. So ladies, listen. He says you must learn quietly with entire submissiveness. Entire emphasizes completeness. And the term submissiveness comes from the Greek verb meaning to place under. So in other words, if women are to learn, they have to place themselves completely under their teacher, which means that they have to remain teachable if they're to learn. This is one of the main reasons why there are no such there's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. Because how can a woman obey this command unless she places herself completely under the instructions of a teacher? She's out there left to herself. Who's she going to submit to? <laughs> right? So she has to have someone to submissively learn from. And in the context of this, this passage, that's not talking about her husband. It's talking about her overseers. So she must not be a lone ranger. She must not be divorced from the education and preaching and teaching of the church. She should be taught, educated, equipped. She is not prohibited from the assembly. And she must be teachable. Fourthly, a godly woman is quiet. A godly woman is quiet. The fourth characteristic of a godly woman. A godly woman is to be quiet by refraining from two distinct offices in the corporate assembly. We're going to go through this pretty quickly because I want to spend my most, my, most of my time on the last point today. She used to be quiet by refraining from filling two corporate offices. So those are, number one, the office of teacher-preacher. Paul says, I do not allow a woman to teach. Best translated as to be a teacher. But it's important to say here that Paul is not per- forbid women to teach under appropriate conditions and circumstances. Meaning she's not, she's not uh, prohibited from teaching at all. She's just prohibited from for filling the office and role of teacher-preacher in the life of the corporate church. An example of uh, an appropriate condition and circumstance in which a woman can teach a man is seen in Priscilla and Aquila. They both instructed Apollos, Acts 18. But when this argument is brought up by egalitarians, they fail to, to observe something really important. Aquila and Priscilla instructed Apollos individually, privately, not in the corporate worship, not in the corporate assembly. It was privately. 
So, I'm going to have to be quiet in the sense of refraining from filling the office of pastor-teacher. And secondly, the office of pastor-elder. Pastor-elder. He says, but I did not allow a woman to exercise authority over a man. Now, also, it could be rendered to govern. She is not allowed to govern over men, which carries the idea of ruling over somebody. And so Paul here is saying quite clearly that women are, forbid, are forbidden from governing men in the church. And if a pastor elder, by its very definition, is an overseer, then a lady can never serve in that office because she is prohibited from governing. So that's why a lot of churches that believe the Bible, they don't have female elders. If you ever wanted that, that's why. I mean, our, our main... Our main biblical defense for not having female pastor elders, it's not 1 Timothy 3, it's 2 Timothy 2. Instead of governing and teaching, Paul says, listen, ladies, I don't, I don't want you to think I'm making this up, okay? <laughs> Paul says she is to remain quiet. She is to remain quiet. And this doesn't mean she can't ever say a word. Does it mean that she can have an opinion or input in the ministry of the church? It doesn't mean that she does not have spiritual gifts. It also does not mean she can't teach or lead a group. In fact, the opposite is true. She is to teach, but she is not to teach men. She is to teach her children and other women, Titus 2. Titus 2, 3 and 5. Paul wrote to Titus, Older women likewise are to be irreverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. Teaching what is good. So women, you should be teaching. But the scope of a woman's teaching ministry must not extend to men in any public or corporate meeting. Now, many have asked, which maybe you have too, or asking right now, You've never heard this pastor's talk before. Why is Paul restricting this role of public teaching and eldership in the church to men only? Why? And thankfully, just like Paul does, he doesn't just say it and end it. He says it and he explains why. For, meaning because, it was Adam who was created First, then Eve. Now that order is significant. He appeals to the original act of creation itself, showing that from the beginning, before the fall, the woman was created to be subordinate. She was to be his helper. Genesis 2.18. And again, this design does in no way, I feel like we always have to make that caveat, this design Uh, does not mean that men are inferior or that women are somehow not equal in value or dignity. There should not be any question about that because Genesis 127 says, male and female, he created them in his image. In Galatians 3.28, we are all one in Christ. There's neither male nor female. But since creation, there has always been and always will be different distinct roles among men and women. We know that's true. Because Paul, an apostle, 
substantiates this claim that women are not to teach or have authority over men in the church, not because of culture, but because of creation. Because of creation. Therefore, we must learn and understand and embrace and employ these practices, because if we don't, what happens when we function outside of God's design? Things don't work, right? Things don't work. Bad things happen, but most of all, we are in rebellion towards God. And now that Paul, what Paul does in verse 14 is further substantiate the reason for not having women in the position of public teaching. Since Eve was the one who, who initiated the very first sin, it demonstrated what can happen when she functions in the headship role. Look at verse 14. It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into the transgression. Interesting sentence, isn't it? What is that saying? Is it saying it's all Eve's fault? You women mess it all up. Shame on you. No. Adam, as the head, is culpable for the fall. But we do need to recognize Satan's tactic was not accidental. Eve was the one who fell for the lie of Satan, and he knew it. He knew she would, if one was going to. And here Paul is bringing this up to show the immense danger and tragic consequences of men allowing women to pervert God's order. The fall of the entire human race, which led to depravity and judgment, was not simply the result of disobedience to God's command, but from violating God's appointed rules for the sexes. And therefore, it is imperative that you, as a member of this church, know and fulfill your role. Men, it's clear from Scripture that your role is to be the leader, the protector, and the provider. And ladies, your role is to be the quiet, submissive helper. That's where it starts. That's not all. A primary way you are to function in God's creation in conjunction with being a helper to your husband is to be a mother. <sighs> to be a mom. Verse 15. The final characteristic of a godly woman for this morning we end on a perfect note on this Mother's Day. A godly woman is maternal. Part of being a godly woman is to rear children. Look at verse 15. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children. Wow. What do we do with that? Some translations say, but women will be saved through 
the bearing of children. The word comes from the Greek term meaning to deliver. Salvation. Is a woman going to inherit eternal salvation by having babies? No, of course not. That's not what it's saying. If that were the right interpretation, then women who never marry or can't have children have no hope. Sorry, ladies, the gospel won't apply to you. That's not what it's saying. Some say it means that she will be physically delivered from death and childbirth. That's just ludicrous. Because women have died in childbirth. So what does it mean? What does this quote-unquote controversial verse mean? Well, she is going to be delivered from something, and that's this. She is going to be delivered from spiritual uselessness. By having children, women are delivered from spiritual uselessness. And that's clear because if men are going to hold the office of preaching and leading, having spiritual influence on people, women can't do those things. What are they going to do? Well, I would argue they have even a higher calling than a pastor elder. Because they have been given the immense privilege and responsibility to bear children to influence them for the kingdom. Since she is prohibited from preaching and teaching, or that she is to remain quiet and submissive, having no spiritual influence in that way, women in general are delivered from the idea that she makes no significant contribution in life spiritually. So it is God's purpose. Listen, it is God's purpose that a woman influence society through her children. Which is to say her contribution to the world is what her children do based on what they have been taught by their mother. It reveals the tremendous responsibility of raising the godly seed. The word childbearing, it it means parentage. So Paul is not talking about the simple act of giving birth. He's talking about Raising them in a godly manner. And now it's no secret that our society depreciates motherhood. They love to shame mothers. Oh, you, 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 you don't have a job, you don't work outside the home? Oh, that must be nice. Oh, I'm a mom and I work. Well, guess what? Somebody's taking care of your kids when you're at work. You know? They depreciate that. And women are looked down upon for being stay-at-home moms. For simply being a mom, for having more than 1.5 kids. That's not biblical. And God says that a woman must find their fulfillment and their purpose in raising children. So ladies, embrace that high calling. Be proud of it and love it. Boast about it. I get to be a mom. I get to be at home with my children. I get to raise my children and teach them the gospel. And show them and make disciples. And then you must reject the tragic yet very common idea, even in the church. It's okay for a wife to intentionally refrain from ever having children. 
That is a worldly and ungodly way of thinking, and it makes me so angry and sad. Now, notice I say intentionally. There are some women who desperately want to have children. But God has closed their womb. I mean, we see it in the Old Testament. God is the one who opened and closes the womb. And some women, though they desperately want children, they can't. And in those cases, we do need to be slow to judge women. Be patient with women. And women who cannot have kids, they should consider adoption. And it's clear from this verse that generally it is God's will, however, for women to bear children, to become mothers, to raise a godly seed, because that's how they influence society. And by doing so, by mothering, women are saved from the stigma of only having led the world into sin and death. But... There's a condition. There's a condition from being saved from that stigma. There's a condition from being saved from spiritual uselessness. End of verse 15. If they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Ladies, this is your prescription for mothering. Teach your children the faith. Teach your children love and sanctity. And self-restraint. If they remain in the truth and in holiness, women will be saved from spiritual uselessness. Self-restraint, it could also just be translated sober-mindedness. Sober-minded. Women need to be sober-minded. And that's not, I'm not going to go there, in her thinking, Okay, that sober-mindedness in her, means her thinking and her actions and desires and passions and emotions are under control. I know we like to joke about how emotional women are. And sometimes that's true, especially in the unbelieving community. But ladies, let me encourage you. I have met some godly women whom I would entrust my children to over any man I know. Because men not, might not cry as much over soupy stories on Lifetime, but men express their emotions in other ways. So this is a picture of a godly mother. She's an example of faithfulness, unconditional affection, and holiness. And if all mothers purpose to be that way, our society would reflect those attributes, wouldn't they? I mean, if moms poured their lives into teaching love and faith and doctrine and holiness and self-control, I think we'd be in a much better place society and society-wise, wouldn't you? But you and I know both very well it's not the case. In our culture today, one preacher noted that there are extremely high rates of illegitimacy and divorce. Turn on the news, you'll see mothers abandon their children. And now it's becoming more and more 
acceptable for women to raise children alone, which forces them into the secular workforce so she can provide, thereby fulfilling both roles that she was never intended to fill. Annual abortions number in the millions, which shows the heart of many mothers has gone cold. Millions of children whose mothers allow them to see the light of day cower in fear under angry abuse. abuse. Countless mothers who ignore, neglect, or abandon their children in pursuit of self-centered fulfillment are out of control. Because children are seen as inconvenience. To my career. I read a story online about this hospital CEO who was on her way to work she was late for a series of meetings. Midwest, summertime, so it gets in the 90s. She gets there. She parks the car, runs inside for her meetings. She comes back, and she finds her infant baby girl dead. Why? Because her identity, her focus, her attention was all geared toward her job as a CEO, not as a mother. Needless to say, there is a dire need for godly mothers to be and to do what Paul is describing here in this portion of Scripture. So my my dear Christian Women, my dear Christian women, please do not be deceived and to think your influence in this world is supposed to be through your work outside the home. God's will is for you to have your greatest influence in the work done in the home with your precious children. Do not allow the world to depreciate you. Do not allow the world to scorn your role of motherhood. Do not be forced into exchanging it for some temporal feeling of worldly accomplishment. Because the world is changed through those whom God uses and those that God uses are those who have been taught from birth from their mother and grandmother like Timothy. So if you bear children and raise them up to be disciples of Christ, you will have influenced souls for eternity. So this Mother's Day, you've been introduced to these characteristics of a godly woman. Women, you are to be modest, obedient to God teachable to the overseers whom God has put on your life. Quiet and submissive and maternal. This is how God defines what a godly woman is. So ladies, moms and soon-to-be moms, grandmas, 
do you measure up to this standard of success, standard of godliness? Which one or ones of these characteristics is lacking or weak in your life? And now that you have just been instructed about what these characteristics are, with God's help and his enabling, you can conform to these characteristics. You can meet them. But not only can you, you must. Because that's what the Word of God says. Amen? Let me pray for you. Lord God, thank you so much for this time together. Thank you that you have given us your sure word, your, your, your uh, prophetic word made more sure than any any worldly wisdom or psychology or philosophy or experience. Oh God, I pray for the ladies here, the sweet ladies here today, that if any are discouraged and depressed and weary, I pray they find their identity in you. They find fulfillment in their God-given role. To be helpers, to be mothers, to be learners, to be teachers. Thank you so much for our mothers who have given us life and have tenderly raised us and have been there for us whenever we need we need them. I love you, Lord. I love this church. And I pray for our sanctification this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.